Welcome to the Focus and Chill podcast, where we discuss productivity tactics that work for neurodivergent individuals. Every episode, we interview guests with lived experience of neurodiversity who also have a solid productivity and habit game, and pass the learnings on to you, our wise and benevolent audience. We're your hosts, Jeremy and Joey. I'm Joey, and I coach creatives to get moving on their most ambitious projects through the power of solid habits and strong focus. I'm also a perpetual student of psychology and perpetually on a quest to a one-armed chin-up. And I'm Jeremy, and you're a spicy software developer turned startup founder, building the Focus Bear app to help people with ADHD and autism thrive at work. My cool party trick is leaving parties early so I can get to sleep in time for my two hour long morning routine. The Focus and Chill podcast is brought to you by Focus Bear, a habit and productivity app that makes healthy habits and deep work the path of least resistance. If you have a tendency to check emails or scroll through Instagram first thing in the morning, but long to develop a meditation and exercise habit first thing, Focus Bear can help you. The app blocks distractions on all your devices and guides you through your habits one at a time. Throughout the day, Focus Bear assists you to stay in deep work by blocking websites and apps that are unrelated to your chosen focus mode. Life's not all about work though. You'll be prompted to take regular breaks to rest your eyes and stretch your muscles. At the end of the day, Focus Bear helps you switch off. Work-related apps get hidden so you can unwind and sleep well. Check out the app by going to focusbear.io. Welcome to episode number 47 of the Focus and Chill podcast. We're thrilled to be joined by Dr. Siobhan Lamb today. Dr. Lamb has worn many hats during her life. Neurodivergent herself with a neurodiverse family, she spent 20 years as a teacher in STEM and diverse learning and is now principal of Embrace Difference, a business supporting neurodivergent children in the education system, including provision of, of professional development in educational settings and advocacy services. Dr. Lamb is also the head of neurodiversity at a mainstream school in Sydney. Welcome to the show, Siobhan. Thank you for having me. It's great. I met Siobhan at the ADHD conference in Queensland a few months ago and Siobhan spoke there and we really, I really enjoyed her talk and it was great to meet you. So I was keen to, to kick things off by hearing a bit about your own history with neurodivergence and when you realised you weren't neurotypical. So I was diagnosed as neurodivergent or as ADHD when I was seven. So I can't actually remember a time in my life where I wasn't different. Um, Until I was seven, I was a situational mute, so I didn't speak. And I went to two different schools. I went to a mainstream school and a deaf school. Um, And then at the age of seven, I was diagnosed with ADHD, giftedness and dyslexia. So I've always been different. It's probably in some ways fortunate that you got the support from an early age. Yeah, extremely fortunate. I I listen to stories a lot of late diagnosed adults and I just haven't had the difficulties they've had. I only got diagnosed when I was, well, two years ago. Oh, wow. A lot of coping strategies had to be learned. I was quite interested by the the situational muteness because I I feel like when I was a child I was a bit like that at times as well can you tell the audience what that was like I mean I really can't remember very much um Hmm. I remember I had a very close-knit group of friends that I still have today Hmm. and they helped me out a lot 
I don't know why I didn't speak. I, I know I had a severe speech impediment and I went to speech therapy all the way through to high school to try and help me with my speech impediment. I don't know if it was because I was embarrassed I couldn't speak. I did speak a little bit at home, but just not outside the home. Mm. But I can't remember even what I'm telling you now. I think his memories from what people have told me, not mm. really my memories. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't probably don't remember much of when I was six or seven either. As we were talking before about how the school system might need to change for, for HSC and year 12 exams, but do you feel like there've been a lot of changes in the way that children are supported in the school system if they're neurodivergent since you were a student? So I actually think that since I've been at school, so I'm nearly 50 now, so it's a long time since I've been at school, there's a lot more awareness around neurodivergence. Mm. There's a lot more support that is there and a lot more understanding. Mm. But in fact, things have gone backwards in some ways where mm. when I was a kid, I was never boxed. Mm. Whereas I think a lot of neurodivergent kids these days are boxed. Mm. That there's more understanding, there's more awareness, there's more information and support out there. But we are stereotyping and boxing more than we did back in my day. Yeah, okay. In terms of special classes and separate schools? Yeah, in terms of special classes. Also in terms of, well, they have ADHD, they're going to be disruptive mm. before you even meet the child. Mm. Well, they can't possibly have ADHD. They are very polite. Mm. Whereas none of those things would ever have been said about me that mm. the knowledge about ADHD wasn't there and so the stereotypes and the stigma wasn't there either mm. yeah, interesting in some ways I, I imagine it probably it, it must go both ways that there, there might be a bit more acceptance of of people who are really hyperactive because in the past maybe was corporal punishment still a thing when you were at school um, not at the school I was at, but at the school okay. my brothers were at, it was. Yeah. Um, but maybe that's just girls versus boys. Okay. And I was very hyperactive, but I wasn't at all misbehaved. Mm. So it wasn't something that ever, um, I was going to say, hit me, but that was meant to be metaphoric, not literal. Um, mm. It wasn't. It wasn't something that ever would have affected me anyway. I, I was suspended mm. multiple times okay. for just not being able to be still mm. and yeah. for arguing. Mm. Um, but, yeah, look, it's it definitely cuts both ways, Jeremy, and, and this is with life in general. The more information we have, mm. the better it is, but at the same time, how people use that information very much depends on the lens they're seeing it through. Mm, yeah. And I wonder also about boxing oneself as well, because I, I found after I got my pre-diagnosis of autism, I felt that in some ways it was helpful in that I didn't beat myself up for struggling in social situations, but I felt that I also almost, I bent down to the stereotype in that I then, I avoided social situations and I avoided things that I maybe might have done in the past with a, a mask on and it's probably there's a, 
an area in the middle, which is probably healthy, where I'm aware of my challenges, but if it's necessary, I'll still strive to meet them. Do you think there's something around that too, in terms of almost self-boxing? Yeah, I definitely do. But I wonder if that's because it's not a, a negative thing. It's that in being given the diagnosis, you were for once free to actually be who you are. Mm. It, it gave you the freedom of being you. Mm. And before the diagnosis, you didn't have that freedom. I, mm. I actually see that as a, a good thing. Mm. But you are right. We we do self-box. I, I was diagnosed as autistic as an adult. Mm-hmm. It didn't really do anything for me, though. I, To mm. be perfectly honest, it was neither here nor there. Mm. But I wonder if that's because I was different my whole childhood. Mm. ADHD wasn't really a big thing when I was diagnosed as a child. I was different my whole childhood that another label of difference was just another label of difference. Mm. I was also brought up in a family where my parents taught us to embrace who we were, Mm -hmm. that it was our strength, not our weakness. Mm. And so we were not taught to mask. Mm -hmm. We were taught when we left the house, there were certain expectations that were demanded from us and Mm. we needed to meet them. Mm-hmm. But when we were in our house, we never had to make those expectations. It feels really important to have a, a safe space. Yes. And, and so I think I was raised in a way that made me feel safe. Mm. In a way, a lot of neurodivergent adults I've met never felt. I feel very grateful to have had the same experience that my parents are probably similar to me. And so they they never saw my behaviours as weird. They just accepted it very grateful for that and like you said it's hard for people who don't have that let's talk now about in terms of the the work projects that you're focusing on it it does relate to what we were talking about before in terms of the education system and and making it better for neurodivergent people what type of projects do you do with embrace difference so i i straddle two worlds so with embrace difference i mediate and advocate for neurodivergent kids in the mainstream school setting. I mainly look after kindergarten to year four, year five. And basically I'm trying to support both the school and the parents to support the child. So the child does not exit the education system. Most situations I walk into, and when I say most, I mean 99% of situations I walk into Everyone wants to do the best. Mm. Everyone is on the same page. They just don't know what to do. Mm. Is there, would it be possible to share an example without names or any details to to give a sense of what it might be like? So I get called into a lot of situations where kids have been suspended Mm -hmm. and looking at what we can do to prevent them from being resuspended or what we can do to transition them back into the school. So I might do a behaviour support plan in a neuroaffirming way, which will help. So neurodivergent people and kids, we cycle up and down. So we regulate, we dysregulate, we regulate, we dysregulate. There's behaviours associated with all of that regulation and dysregulation. Now, what's really important is that teachers and parents don't step in 
when a kid's dysregulating because then they will never learn to regulate. You will teach the child learned helplessness that you always need to step in. But then at a point, instead of cycling like a sine wave, you'll keep going up. And there is always a point and a behaviour that you can see, which is the point of no return. And so teachers and parents need to be able to recognise that behaviour as the behaviour where you get the child out of the environment. Take the child for a walk, get them out of the classroom, send them on an errand, because that's the behaviour where they're going to end up in meltdown. Mm, yeah. So that's one of the main main things that I can do is, is work out what that behaviour is. Now, sometimes it's not easy because a child that whose nervous system is so dysregulated, they might cycle through that within 60 seconds. Mm. So a teacher might have 60 seconds to be able to notice that behaviour. Yeah. Now, if that behaviour is like for one of my clients putting clothes in his mouth, that's mm. quite easy for a teacher to see across a classroom. Mm-hmm. But for one of my clients, if that behavior is making fists under the table, mm. well, that's very hard to see within 60 seconds from across a classroom. Yeah. I'm curious about how a teacher would do it or help the child to, say, go outside without singling them out or doing it. Well, that... well, you are singling them out because you are asking them to go outside. Yeah. But you do it in a way that, so, always use declarative language, not commands. Mm-hmm. So you would have done this proactively with the child where the child and you have discussed, okay, your amygdala, everything goes through your amygdala, but the, the, the connections between your amygdala and your brain are actually frontal lobe are slower than your amygdala and the rest of your body. Mm-hmm. So the rest of your body knows you're getting dysregulated before you consciously know. Mm. so we're going to look for the behaviors that your body's telling you it's dysregulated Mm. before your frontal lobe does Mm -hmm. because then we can work on regulating you before your body actually starts the cascading of dysregulation yeah and so you speak to them and you you speak this through when they're not dysregulated when everything's calm it's proactive And then when they have got that behavior, you simply go up and say, I notice your clothing's in your mouth. And they will say, oh, it is. Mm -hmm. And then you'll say, I wonder if we should go for a walk. Mm -hmm. So there's no, you need to get up and go for a walk now. Mm -hmm. There's no commands. It's just an absolute notice of behavior. Mm -hmm. I notice your leg is tapping. And I'm just checking in with you. Hmm. Does the teacher go for the walk with them? So it would depend on the situation at every single school. The teacher can't leave the other 30 kids. Yeah. So it would be a situation of if there was a learning support officer or another teacher available in that room, hmm. they would go for the walk with the child. Yeah. Or if we already had, again, proactively decided on spaces that the child could go to that were within the teacher's line of sight, Mm. the child could go by themselves. But that obviously depends very much on the age of the child, the level Mm. of dysregulation, and Mm. the setup of the school. Mm. Yeah, I can see that being really helpful. 
just being able to get out of the space. Well, no one that's dysregulating in an environment will regulate within that environment. Mm. Yeah. So getting out of the environment's the the number one thing to help you with regulation. Yeah. Do the schools look at changing the environment as well if part of the dysregulation is the the lighting or perhaps the other kids being too close? Is there anything that can be changed in the environment or is it often just the everything all put together, the other children so there is the, a the class? There's a fantastic checklist um, mm. on the Merit Centre website, M-A-H-R-I-T, by Stuart Shanker, and it discusses regulation environments. Mm. So what to look at to help children regulate. And mm. you can actually go through the checklist with the kid what do you think prevents you from regulating? What mm. do you think causes you to dysregulate faster? Mm. Schools try their hardest. And again, when I say schools, I mean 99% of schools try their hardest to alter environments to suit kids. Mm. But at the end of the day, there are budgets and there are just things they can't get around. Mm. I seriously don't understand why we still have fluorescent lights in any classroom mm. but we do and schools are slowly getting rid of them but we still have some mm. so a lot of teachers one of the environmental changes they'll make is they will now open blinds and mm -hmm. have as much natural light coming in as possible yeah to avoid having to turn on the lights yeah and if you walk through a class, if you walk through a school today, you'll actually see that happen in a lot of classrooms now. Mm. Schools will try and keep the kids separated as much as they can if a child has difficulty with that. But at the same time, we now have some classes in New South Wales with more than 30 kids in them. It's just a level of space constraint that yeah. the classroom might have. Mm. So schools do try and alter the environment for the child, and we discuss how to try and alter the environment for every individual child. Hmm. But obviously there are constraints hmm. that each individual school might have. Hmm. Tricky. And we were talking before about the budget required to make Year 12 exams better. It's probably the, the same thing here. Hiring more teachers and more classrooms is not a cheap thing to do. Yeah, and, and look, and talking about teachers, we have a huge staff shortage. Mm. It's across the country. In New South Wales, it's huge, especially in rural schools. Mm. We still have some classes that are being collapsed because we don't have enough teachers to teach two separate classes. Mm. So 50 kids are being put in the school hall together. Most of that is happening still in rural schools, mm. but we have staff shortages. And so it's one of the other issues is how do we how do we increase people wanting to go into teaching? Yeah, it seems really important because some of the signs that you mentioned, like the fists under the desk, would be very hard even with 30 children, let alone 50. And I imagine it's increasingly not just one child that the teacher needs to look out for, but potentially five or six or even more in the classroom. Well, if you think about it, so ADHD... Um, you'd probably have 8 to 10% of any particular classroom with ADHD. Mm. You're probably looking at about 4% mm. 
having um, been autistic, mm. about 4% being dyslexic. Mm. And that's besides any children with specific learning disabilities or giftedness that you also have in that classroom. The other aspect of your work that I was keen to hear about as well is your role as the head of neurodiversity at a, a school in Sydney. So I work like? three days a week at a mainstream school and mm. basically my job is to allow kids to thrive in a system that wasn't set up for them. Mm. So I look after the neurodivergent kids that are average to above average academically mm. and trying to help them reach their potential, mm. trying to ensure, and, and basically my, if I want to distill it down, I've reached my goal when a child says to me, I feel like I belong here, Dr. Lamb. Mm. So that's my main goal. I want them to feel that they belong. I want them to feel that the school is here for them. Mm. That must be really gratifying when you do hear that. It is It is wonderful. Um, I will say to you, it's, it's not easy, though. Schools aren't set up neurodivergent kids it's about trying to make sure that and I don't believe in forcing people to mask or conform mm. so for me it's all about allowing them to be themselves mm. and feel a sense of belonging as themselves mm. what type of changes do you make to facilitate that so we start with collaboration meetings with the parents and the child to work out what might dysregulate the child, what might regulate them, where they feel safe, where they get anxious, what their strengths are, what their interests are, all of these things. We then try and work out how to put them in environments that suit them. And when we're putting them in environments that don't suit them, which inevitably will happen on a daily basis, mm. how to provide them with the support necessary for them to be able to at least cope, but soar in that environment. Mm. So what supports are needed in the environments and also just an awareness of what environments do suit this child and what environments don't. Mm. They're given a lot of accommodations. So if they are in an environment that doesn't suit them and the supports aren't working, they're allowed to leave the classroom and go to a certain person or a couple of people mm. is about getting out of the environment. Yeah. If you're dysregulating, get out of the environment you're dysregulating in. Mm. We've also developed an executive functioning program. So I teach them executive functioning mm. and another teacher helps them with organisation. Mm -hmm. And the psychologists and counsellors at the school help them with emotional regulation. And so we work very closely together with executive functioning and emotional regulation. That sounds really helpful. I was going to ask before when you were saying you work with students who are above average to gifted, is it similar to the old gifted and talented programs? But I don't remember anything about emotional support or dysregulation or executive functioning. It was just being given more advanced schoolwork. So it sounds like it would make a big difference. No, we have a gifted and talented program that runs separately from what mm. I do. Mm -hmm. um, of course, there are kids that overlap. Yeah. But 
what I do is very separate. The gifted and talented program is more about just being given harder work, more problem solving, mm -hmm. lots of competition-based work, inquiry-based work. Mm. Mine is more about the support necessary to help neurodivergent kids reach their potential. Mm. So, like, I'll give you an example. One of the common myths is that if you're gifted, you shouldn't need as much explicit instruction mm -hmm. or as much scaffolding as kids that struggle academically. Mm. But gifted kids need just as much scaffolding. Gifted kids can learn to a deeper extent, understand to a more intrinsic level, but they need just as much scaffolding in order to get work started, to complete work, mm -hmm. to know how to logically order their work. Mm. So I provide the support necessary for the work they're doing in the gifted program to work really well. Really encouraging to hear about those kind of changes. Let's switch gears to when you're not working, what do you enjoy doing in your off time? So I spend a lot of time, I have three children with my three children. Yeah. Um, we walk a lot. We play a lot of board games. I love board games. Yeah. I make way, way too much Lego, <laughs> far too much Lego. I also run the Lego club at school. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, and I like to read. I read a lot. We watch a lot of movies. Hmm. But I spend a lot of time with my children hmm. doing whatever works. We play a lot of card games, although I get beaten these days, so <laughs> I don't like to play them as much. What board games do you most enjoy? Um, I don't know. We've got lots. I could actually open a board game store. Um, <laughs> right in front of me at the moment, keeping my computer up, is Azul. Have you ever played Azul? No. I I'll love Azul. My older child and I love playing patchwork. My middle child loves a game called Dungeon Mayhem. We play a lot of backgammon and chess, just old favourites. Hmm. We play a lot. I, as I said to you, and this is no exaggeration, I could actually open up a board game store. <laughs> That's very cool. I'm taking notes. I've <laughs> only recently started playing occasional board games i've only got settlers of Catan and a few card games but i'd like Catan's to find some a great game yeah just a bit of a time investment yeah look it does we tend to play here a lot of games that are quick and easy so mm. we would play at least probably one board game a night mm. or card game a night mm -hmm. but they tend to be the fast ones so a game of azul would take my three children and myself, 20 minutes to play. Ooh. And so it's a fast, whereas we have right next to me here, I have Everdell. Everdell is a great game, but you're looking at an hour and a half, two hour commitment. Mm. So it's hardly taken out of the box. Yeah. We just don't simply have the time. Mm. Um, what else do I have here? Yeah, look, we tend to play the faster games. So how old, do you have a little one? I don't. Ah, uh, so if for people that have little kids, a starter board game which is excellent is Kin Domino. 
So King Domino, I played with my kids from the time they were about five. Mm -hmm. And again, a game with the four of you might take 15 to 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. So, and you can start teaching beginning multiplication and addition skills. Uh -huh. um, my middle son is dyslexic. Mm -hmm. Actually, all my children are dyslexic. But my middle son, we play a game called A Little Wordy mm -hmm. together. And it's an anagram solving game. Uh -huh. And the game would take us no more than eight minutes per round. Hmm. And it's all, and it's helped his spelling. Yeah, right. So a lot of the games I pick have specific educational purposes to them. <laughs> but That's they're still the fun. Me. <laughs> they're still fun, but they're quick and easy. I, gone are the days where I have the time to sit down and play a game of Monopoly mm. <laughs> um, or Everdell, which is there. They and my kids would probably, we all have ADHD. We mm. would probably rather play 10 short games than one very long game. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's part of why I haven't been playing many board games because they feel like they take too long. But I'm going to look into Azul and maybe even a little wordy as well. Eight minutes sounds great. It's a great game. And Splendor is a great game, which is about 20-minute rounds. Hmm. Um, my children love, I hate it because I get beaten every time, Sequence. Okay. Again, a very fast game, but I just can't win. They're, they're smarter <laughs> than me these days. It's terrible. <laughs> love it. Do you have a, a morning routine that you follow? So... Basically, you do as much as you can the night before. Yep. Mm -hmm. Is So we lay out clothes the night before. We put lunches in the fridge if we are going to take lunch the next day. Bags are packed near the front door. Mm -hmm. So as much as can be done the night before, the better. Mm -hmm. For kids with ADHD and myself, calling myself a kid, I wish, mm -hmm. <laughs> Getting straight out of bed into the shower is a good thing for us because it mm. wakes us up. Mm. Otherwise, it would be too difficult for us to get up and get going. Mm. Taking medication as soon as we wake up also works. Mm -hmm. Unless it affects your appetite, it's a good way of also helping you get up and get going. Mm. Medication's never affected my appetite, which is completely unfair, completely, <laughs> completely unfair. But... And so medication, shower, we also have clocks that basically tell us what time we should have things done by. Ah. And so if I'm looking at my child and by 6.40 they haven't done something they should have done, I'll tell them then, oh, have you brushed your teeth yet, sweetheart? so that you don't get wait till 7 o'clock when everyone's meant to be at the front door to mm. say, have you done this, 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 and this. Mm. It's far more casual and far more relaxed as you go through. Does the clock literally have a toothbrush on it? No, no. So I just put Post-it notes on it. Oh, yeah. Um, but you can do it any number of ways. But I put mm. Post-it notes on it. I have some clients that colour it in different colours. I just buy cheap clocks from Kmart at $3.50 each nice. and use whiteboard markers on them. Mm. Um, 
there's other methods to do that too. So you can have a box. So I've tried this with a few clients and it's only worked for a couple of them, but a box with items in it and the kid pulls out the item and it could be a toothpaste and mm. it will remind them to brush their teeth. Oh, yeah. And then as soon as they've done that, they put that into another box. Yeah, and right. so everything during the morning transfers from one box to the next as they do the items. Oh, yeah. Okay. If you do it that way, though, the items have to be extremely literal. Don't mm. get creative <laughs> for brushing your teeth. It's a toothbrush or toothpaste. Mm. They need to be literal. Mm. Um, for feeding the cat, you can have a soft toy of a cat in there. Mm. We leave the house at seven on days I don't work at seven. And if the kids are there at 10 to seven, or if one child is there at 10 to seven, they have the opportunity of being woken up later the next day. If the child gets there at 10 past seven, I'll just calmly wait. There'll be no screaming, no nothing, but they know that they'll be woken up 10 minutes earlier the next day. Hmm. And so there is just a natural consequence for being late to the front door. And that works? It works. It, yeah. it's, look, it, I will say to you, somebody said to me once, how much screaming and yelling happened to get this in place? And I said, I can't remember because I've been doing this since forever, I, since the kids were small. Mm. I, I don't like screaming. The studies have actually shown that neurodivergent go kids going to school after arguments, it just basically eradicates their whole day. Mm. And so the calmer we can keep the morning routine, the better. Does that mean it might be better for them to be a little bit late to school? And Definitely. Avoid Yep. Definitely. It, mm. it, it is always better for them to be late to school calm than end up at school on time, but they've been yelled at the whole time. Neurodivergent adults too. It's not great for the parents to go to work with all that discontentment inside them. That's something I try and follow. <laughs> have to do transfer my things from my one box to another box before I feel ready to work. <laughs> I love that. I haven't actually done it with physical items, but I can see that being really helpful. I've seen people on TikTok do those chore charms where they have the bracelets with a little key tag on it and the the habit or the morning routine thing to do, like brush your teeth, and then you have to take it off your arm after you've done it. Yeah, look, I've seen those too, and I think they're really quite good. I they're harder to make sure you do every day. Hmm. And things like um, a lot of my clients use apps on phones. Hmm. I can't ever guarantee my phone will be charged enough for that. So <laughs> it just adds a, a degree of complexity in my life I don't need. Well, it sounds like you've got a really good way of doing it. How about during the day? What are your tactics for optimizing your productivity? I've got to tell you, I don't really have many that work. The best thing I can say to people is understand yourself and be aware and utilize your own brain. So mm. sometimes when I go to work, I can just feel on. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I mm. just, I feel like alive and on. Mm. And I make sure that I don't waste any of that time. Mm-hmm. And I can get 10 times the amount of work done that the person next to me can mm. when I'm feeling like that. Mm. 
And then other days I can go to work. And when I say days, it could be a week mm. where I just can't force my brain to do anything. Mm. And in trying to force my brain, all that will end up happening is that I will get highly anxious, highly stressed, and end up probably in tears. Mm. So I think the best thing is when you feel on, be on. Don't mm. waste time. Mm -hmm. When you feel off, be off. Mm -hmm. Don't force your brain to do things. Now, there are certain things I never have to force my brain to do, even if I'm in that situation, which is I love spending time with kids. Mm -hmm. So if I'm in one of those frame of minds, I'll just make sure I see kids from the time I get to school to the time I leave. Mm -hmm. And all my admin will be left. Until a day that I know I'm on and I can work through that admin. So that's my biggest piece of advice is try to go in flow rather than against flow. Is there anything that contributes to to feeling on or is it it just happens when it happens? So I think that things contribute to me not feeling on. Mm. So I go on a long walk every morning when I get to work. That helps me feel on. Yeah. If I can't go for that walk, I've got less chance of feeling on. Mm. And the walk basically just clears my head. And the next thing that helps me feel on is if I'm not exhausted. Yeah, that helps. So if I sleep well, I'm far, far better off. Hmm. Um, the next thing that helps is if I haven't had any sort of emotional conversations that day. Mm. So if I can avoid all emotional conversations, I have a far better chance of being on. Mm. And when I say emotional, I don't mean what I'm passionate about. I, I can have conversations about my students. I mean more my own personal life or my own emotions. Mm. I'd rather avoid those. And then I'll be far more likely to be on. Yeah. Mm. But sometimes it just happens and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. It, it's just that simple. I, and my brain, I still haven't managed to get it and make it do what I want when I want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Same here. Yeah. I've always wanted to be able to have some consistency and I'm starting to realize that there probably are things that I can do to improve the consistency but there's always going to be some randomness that some days I'm going to wake up and I'm just not going to feel great and I really like what you're saying in terms of almost choosing the type of work that aligns with how you, you're feeling that day and trusting that there will be time for the admin and there will be time there, there will be a day and just trust that mm. there will be a day where you come to work and you feel on. Mm. But yeah. trying to force our brains to do what we want in that moment does nothing but raise our cortisol levels mm. and raise our anxiety levels and cause all sorts of other issues. Yeah. Do you give that advice to students as well? So students don't have as much say over what they're doing today <laughs> as I do, which is unfortunate for them. Yeah. Um, I will give the advice to kids that are studying. Mm. So if possible, try and study when you're in flow. 
don't mm. waste the flow by getting on the phone, by getting on a computer. Mm. Really utilize it. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, and, and look, this sometimes happens to us too, and I do end up in tears, but unfortunately they have an exam on a given day. If they just don't happen to be on flow in flow, well, they still have the exam in that day. Mm. So it's it's a matter of them being able to work through that as well. Mm. And it is against their neurology. Mm. So how do you do an exam when you're not in the right frame of mind? And I, I teach them strategies of how to try and so if I'm not in the right frame of mind and I had to do an exam, the best thing I can do is firstly, don't practice questions before the exam that day mm -hmm. because the chances are there's a greater chance that that would derail my confidence than it will help me Yeah, right. if I'm not in flow. Then when I go to the exam, I ensure and I teach the kids, you do every question you can easily do mm -hmm. because in doing a lot of questions easily, it might actually push your brain into a flow state, mm. getting some momentum going, can mm. push your brain into a flow state. Mm. And then you go back and do questions that you struggle with more. I think I intuitively took that approach with my exams. I'd always race through them and do them really fast because I just found it so anxiety provoking and then get out of there. It's not easy, but the first one is extremely important is if you are not in a flow state, if you are not in a great state of mind, the morning of an exam, do not do practice questions. Mm. Go over your notes, avoid other people like the plague. Yep. Just go over your notes calmly. Mm. Don't do practice questions because it will derail you more than it will help you. Seems like having plenty of rest it is an important part of it. So we're going to take a quick break. Hi there, Focus and Chillers. Are you ready to supercharge your knowledge in the realms of creativity, tech, and psychology? Come check out my fortnightly newsletter. In each edition, you'll get quick wins and actionable takeaways that you can put into practice right away. If this sounds like you, I'd love to have you as a reader. Subscribe for your fortnightly dose of insights. The link is in the show notes. And now let's get back to the show. We're back from our break. Let's talk now about a habit you'd like to remove from your life. There is one habit I'd love to remove, which is looking for stuff that I've misplaced. Oh, it too. takes me a lot of time, a lot of angst. Mm. Do you have one quick tactic for that? Oh, if I had a tactic, my life would be instantly better. <laughs> um, I try very hard not to write things on small pieces of paper. Yeah. So I carry around like books like this now ah. and I put dates on them and everything, no matter what it is that I'm doing, goes in the same book chronologically mm. so that I'm now not looking for little pieces of paper. <laughs> I need that. Um, lots of bits of paper. <laughs> so, yes, but and then I have places where I put my keys, I put my phone, but then again, I talk on my phone as I'm walking around and then I'll put it down somewhere by accident and God mm. knows where it will be. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm often using the find my phone feature on my watch. <laughs> so, yes, that's one habit I would love to break is looking for stuff I've misplaced. Mm. 
And you talked about earlier on when we were talking about morning routines that part of the morning routine is actually preparing the night before. And I find putting my keys in my drop zone the night before is really essential. What yes. things do you do in your evening wind-down routine? So, look, I prepare for the night before, but then I always have a shower at night. Mm-hmm. My kids and I go for a walk. Mm. Um, it's about exercise and hot water. Mm will help us wind down. Yeah. Still then I might lie in bed and the thoughts will still just automatically come into my brain and I can't stop them. So mm. I have one of my little books oh, yeah. <laughs> next to my bed. And as mm. soon as a thought comes into my head, I'll write it down. Mm. And it's sort of, I don't know if you're a Harry Potter fan, but it's like Dumbledore's pensive <laughs> that he takes the thought out and puts it into the memory bowl. Ah, I like that. Because it enables me then to to let it go. I don't have to keep it in there. I don't mm. have to try and remember it for the next day. Mm. I've let it go. Yeah, I love it. I do the same. What resources do you find most helpful? Maybe is Harry Potter a, a good resource? <laughs> I do quote movies a lot of the time. My my mm. students find it hilarious. I have a movie quote for any any situation. <laughs> um, look, I love a book called The Power of Habit. Oh, yeah. My wife it has was, got that on our kitchen table right now by Charles but, Duhigg. Yes. So it's a mm. great book on helping you understand that as soon as something's habitual, it takes it out of your working memory. Mm. So the more habitual you can make most things, the more you free up your working memory to do what you actually want to do. Mm. And so my kids come home, they instantly put their lunch boxes in the kitchen, take off their clothes, put them in the washing machine, put on casual clothing. Mm. And it's all just habit at this point. They don't mm. need to think what they do, they just do it. That's the best thing you can do is make as many daily tasks habitual. Mm, agreed. How about your favourite sensory toy? Um, so I tend to have bouncy balls with me. I yep. love throwing a ball up in the air and catching it. I'm not a sensory seeker most of the time. I'm the opposite. I'm a sensory avoider. So I don't like things that are, are squishy or sticky or... Mm. No, I, I've never even played with Play-Doh. The idea of having Play-Doh in my hands just doesn't <laughs> fit me. Mm. But I like I like a bouncy ball. I like to be able to catch a ball, tennis ball, just to have something in my hand I can play with. Mm. Yeah, sounds fun. I don't know if you've noticed, too, I talk with my hands a lot, so I can't have things in my hands <laughs> a lot because they need to be used to gesticulate and to talk. Yeah, pens might fly in the air otherwise. Yes, they might fly in the air. So, well, it's been really great talking, Siobhan. Where can people connect with you? So, my business is called Embrace Difference. Mm-hmm. And there's an um, email address on there. If they want to get directly in touch with me and not through the, the clog of the machine, they just replace info with Siobhan. So the same, what do you call the end of an email address after Anne? Domain name? Yeah, so the 
the business email address is info at embracedifference.com.au. If you just replace info with Siobhan, it comes directly to me. Wonderful. Do you have any final words or asks? I don't think so. Do you have any? I liked what you were saying just before about the power of habit and taking things out of your working memory. I think that's a really good takeaway. It is. Look, neurodivergent people can hold approximately four pieces of information in their working memory. Mm. We can improve that by making those pieces of information images rather than words because images, as as the saying goes, picture can hold a thousand words. Mm. Images can hold a lot more information than a word can. Mm. And there's a phenomenal, phenomenal program for kids called Visualization and Verbalization, mm. which helps kids turn things into images. And if you have a young child, you can work out if they think in pictures because you can say to them, read a book and then watch the movie and say, oh, my God, I didn't imagine Harry to look like this. Mm. And see if the child says, oh, I did. Or see if the child says, actually, what are you talking about? Like, mm-hmm. Or when you're reading a book to a young child or they're reading, say, can you paint a picture of what that looks like? And see if they're thinking in pictures. And mm. if they're not, encourage that as much as possible. Because mm. adults that don't think in pictures have far less working memory. Ah, okay. I'll have to work on that because I, I don't think in pictures. Okay, so you <laughs> work do on that, that too. <laughs> and, and think about how much more information you can hold in four pictures than you can in four words. Mm, absolutely. And then the power of habit just means that you have all those four pieces of information at your disposal for whatever you want, not the daily grind of life. Mm, love it thanks a lot for coming on the show Siobhan thank you very much bye thanks for tuning in to this episode of the focus and chill podcast to listen to other episodes jump onto podcast.focusbear.io if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you know someone who'd be a good fit email us at team at focusbear.io otherwise stay focused stay chilled and peace out